It's a painful thing to experience relational breakdown in any kind of context. To know that there's tension where there should be an embrace, animosity where there ought to be love. But it's a profound emptiness when the alienation is with respect to the God who made you and who loves you. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller. Glad you're with us as we look at uh, really one of the most significant, huge, important concepts in all of the Bible, and that is the fact that we've been separated from God, but we have been or can be reconciled through Jesus. Jonathan, it's a big idea. How would you explain that super simply? Well, I think we all know what it is to have a broken relationship, and maybe that is the experience of some listening today. You're you're living through the brokenness of a relationship that was once warm and close, and you know it's not anymore. So I, I don't think we need too much help understanding the idea of a broken relationship. And just occasionally, we will see reconciliation take place in human relationships. And it's wonderful when that happens, isn't it? You know, it's a life-giving thing. Yeah. Uh, it's a, you know, it's a fresh start, and it's joy. But something's got to happen to deal with past hurts. There's got to be something that takes place to set the relationship right. And when it comes to our relationship with God, who is holy, who is our just judge, to whom we have an accountability for things to be made right, well, there's going to have to be some serious work done, and there's going to be a price that has to be paid. And the Bible tells us that Jesus came to make things right for those who would trust in him. That is what we're looking at today in our broadcast. So I do hope you'll stay with us. And I also hope you'll open up your Bible to the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 1 as we begin our message, Reconciled Through Jesus. Here is Jonathan. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen those image sequences, maybe in a film or somewhere on social media. A number have been produced in recent years, but an image sequence that begins way out in outer space with the planet Earth maybe just as a speck within the, within the galaxy, looking at the Earth in, it, in its cosmic context. And then, and then the image, it begins to sort of zoom in. Have you ever seen one of these? I, I guess, you know, eventually from the perspective of a satellite, it zooms in and then it zooms in closer and it captures a, you know, a hemisphere and then a continent and then a nation and then a region, and then a city, and then a neighborhood, and then a street, and then a single property, and then a a, a backyard, and then a person on a sun lounger in the backyard, one person, one individual, going from the cosmic to the personal through a very, very clever visual. Now, in a sense, that is the nature of the rapid journey that we undertake from verse 20 to verse 21 of chapter 1 of Colossians. In the previous verses, Paul has just shown us the cosmic Christ in the grand context, the Christ of creation, the Christ of redemption, the Christ who is preeminent in all things. That's what we saw in the previous verses. And Paul, he wanted us to get to grips with the the bigness and the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. It was through this Jesus, verse 20, that God set out to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's a grand vision that we've just been given, painted on a very, very big canvas. It's a mission 
with a truly cosmic implication. But now verse 21, Paul zooms in. Now he makes it personal. And you, he says. The camera now is squarely on you. It is squarely on me. What does this cosmic Christ mean for us personally? That's the question. What are the personal implications of his great work for you and for me? And that's our interest, isn't it? Whenever we go through an election season, we hear grand visions, don't we, of, of leaders and potential leaders, grand promises, grand hopes. We're accustomed to hearing them. We hear their pitches in their radio ads. We watch their debates on TV, perhaps. And if they are a leader of any kind of merit, they will have a very, very big vision. They will paint for us a big picture of what they will do for our society as a whole. And, and that's good and that's proper. That's what we expect of any leader. But at some point in the campaign, you and I are going to have to ask the question, we will come to it, what about me? <laughs> what about my needs? What about my priorities? What about my concerns? How, how does this all come down to my level and the details of my life, my concerns? It's a fair question. And that's where Paul goes now in verse 21. Having painted that grand picture on that cosmic canvas, he now turns to each of us personally and you. Here is where it comes down to ground level. Here is what the reconciling work of Jesus Christ at the cross means for the individual. And Paul begins at just the right place as he explores that now. He begins at the very beginning. He goes back in history with what we were. That's the first focus, what we once were. Verse 21, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Just notice the language there in the words I just read. It's, it's quite grim, actually, a little bit depressing. Nothing appealing or uplifting about this at all. Alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. Not a pretty picture. I, I like to think of myself as still being sort of in, in my youth. Uh, high school and university, they weren't all that long ago. I can still remember them just about still sort of enjoying at least the twilight of youth, I tell myself. Well, yesterday I opened an email from my high school class rep inviting me to our 20-year anniversary dinner from graduation. And I have to tell you, it was a bit of a shock to the system. I don't think of myself as 20 years out of high school. 20 years, surely not. And of course, when you open an email like that, the mind starts you know, going back and you start reminiscing, thinking about how things were. I wonder if you've ever had the experience of looking back at old photographs, maybe from 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, looking back at the old pictures, maybe from high school days, I don't know. You see the, the clothes from the 70s, you remember? Uh, you see the uh, hair from the 80s, maybe you don't want to remember. You remember some rather dark fashion days from the 90s, memories that had been suppressed you know, they start coming back, don't they? And you look at yourself in the photos and you think to yourself, did I really actually look like that? <laughs> Was that really me? Surely not. Surely I didn't do that. <laughs> Paul takes us back through the spiritual photo album here. He's, he's flipping through the pages. 
he's getting out the old Kodak projector and the carousel, if you remember those. And he's showing us a picture of ourselves that we would prefer not to see. Why did anyone keep that photo? <laughs> Why wasn't that thrown out? We might say, no, that wasn't true. But the evidence, it's right here before us. And so we've got to brace ourselves. We've got to look at this image together, however uncomfortable it may be. Now, as we turn to this spiritual photo from the old album, it's important for us to recognize and bear in mind that this state of affairs that we're going to look at, it is not how things always were in God's world, and it is not how God intended things to be in his world. But ever since the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, turned against God in the garden, humanity has been born in this desperate state, in the state of sin, born as fallen creatures. We begin life after the fall as a people alienated from God. That's the first thing that we see in this picture. That's the first term that Paul uses there in verse 21, alienated. Human beings, you and I, we are fundamentally relational creatures. That's who we are. That's how we're wired. We were made for relationship. We were made for interaction. We were made to know and be known. That's how we're wired. And incidentally, I think that's one reason why we found the pandemic so very hard, haven't we? It's been brutally hard relationally. Many people isolated, cut off from loved ones. And it, it's been a grievous thing. It's been a trying thing. It's led to so much isolation. And many of us during the time of the pandemic have discovered, if we didn't know it before, we've discovered just how very relational we are. We may be introverted, but we still need people around us when we lost interactions with others, when we lost opportunities to relate and interrelate, we felt that lack very deeply, didn't we, each one of us? We suffered as a result. We are relational creatures. That's who we are. We're made to flourish as we interact with one another. And most profoundly, we are made for relationship with the God who created us. We were made to know him and be known by him. You see, the God who is our maker is the fountain of our life and the source of our joy. Apart from him, cut off from him, well, our life wanes and our joy ebbs away. That was the experience of Adam and Eve, of course, as they left the garden, as they were sent out of the presence of God when they turned away from him. Very interestingly, the Lord Jesus speaks of eternal life in relational terms. That's the way in which he describes it, in terms of knowing God and being known by him. John 17 and verse 3, Jesus says this, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Augustine, the famous theologian of the early church, rightly said that you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless still until they find their rest in you. We were designed, created, made for relationship with God. And until that relationship is restored to a place of health, we cannot be at peace. We cannot flourish as we were designed to flourish. Ever since the creation, ever since the garden, ever since Adam and Eve turned from the Lord, we human beings, we have been living in a state of alienation from God, from the God who made us, who is the source of life, of fullness, and of joy. That's all of us, each one of us here. 
That's where we came from. That's where we all have been. And it, it may well be that that is actually where you are today. I have no idea. That may be your situation personally. It may actually describe the state of your heart and the situation of your life. Maybe you're here among us in this gathering. Maybe you're listening because you know it and you don't like it. You're aware of that dynamic within your heart. You sense the distance. You sense that there is a breakdown. There is a barrier between you and your maker. You sense that God is there. You know that he is real. And you know as well that things are not right between you and him. As Augustine put it, your heart is restless within you, and you know it. It's a painful thing to experience relational breakdown in any kind of context. Of course, we all know that. To know that there's tension where there should be an embrace, where there's coolness, where there should be warmth, animosity, where there ought to be love. That's an awful feeling in any kind of situation to experience it. But it's a profound emptiness, and it is a profound loss when the alienation is with respect to the God who made you and who loves you. That's, that's something that unsettles us at the very core of our being. We, we might try to suppress the feeling of dislocation, the feeling of unease that is attached to that, and we might suppress it for a time. We might try and explain away an unsettled heart in a myriad of different ways. But none of us can be at odds with our maker and at peace in our heart of hearts. And again, you may be living that reality today. That may be your reality. You may be acutely aware of it. Well, if that is so, if that is your situation, please keep listening. There is hope. Well, we do have to pause right here. But I love the fact that we're being reminded that there is hope and there is hope of being reconciled to God through Jesus. In fact, that's what today's message is all about. It's called Reconciled Through Jesus, part of our series on Colossians called Walking Worthy. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series or you want to go back and listen again, you can do that at our website. It's EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You could also listen on the go if you have the Encounter the Truth app. That's a great way to listen to Jonathan's teaching, whatever it fits your schedule. But whether you listen to the program on the app or on the radio or even online, it's all made possible through your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book that Jonathan has picked. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. It's written by Tim Keller. And again, it's our thank you to you for your financial support this month. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. There is hope, and we're going to come to that hope this morning. But that's the reality that Paul speaks of here, and it was the reality for each one of us. We were alienated, and linked to that, we were hostile in mind. That's the next thing that Paul says as he opens up and shows us this spiritual photograph. I don't know if you've ever considered this truth, but the fact of the matter is that no one is neutral in their attitudes toward God, in their disposition toward him. There, there is no such thing as the impartial onlooker in spiritual things, the unbiased inquirer, the malleable agnostic. Such a person does not exist. The place of spiritual neutrality 
that mythical spiritual Switzerland, it actually doesn't exist. It's not a real place. Those who do not know Jesus, says Paul, are at enmity with him. And all this goes back, it goes back to the fact, it traces back to the fact that God is our maker and he has a rightful claim upon our lives, each one of us. We owe him honor and we owe him love and we owe him obedience and ignoring him, refusing to live in his way, in his world. That's not a a neutral disposition, whether we recognize it or not. That's a place of rebellion. It's a place of hostility toward the one who deserves our devotion. Linked to that hostility in mind, that rebellious turn, that hardened attitude, linked to that, says Paul, was the doing of evil deeds, verse 21 again. That's the next descriptor in the list. We didn't want God telling us what to do because we like to do things our own way. We like to do what we thought best, what we felt would bring us pleasure or satisfaction. But God, he is supremely wise, and his way is supremely good. It is the best way. It is the only right way. And, you know, we see all around us the fruit of human beings doing things according to their own ethic, choosing for ourselves what we will deem right and what we will deem wrong, what we will deem acceptable and what we will deem unacceptable. We see the fruit of that all around us, don't we? And it's not pretty. We're living in days of violence and we're living in days of moral chaos. I won't depress us or disgust us by listing all the evils of our heart and all the evils of our culture and our world. You don't need me to illustrate the point. We know the reality. We're all too familiar. We know the darkness. Now, that is the glance back at the photo album of our former life, and it's not a pretty thing. We would just as soon see that sent back to the basement and never unearthed again. Now, for some, as I've mentioned, this may actually be more of a mirror than a dusty photograph. It may be more of a mirror because what Paul speaks of in verse 21, what I've just described, is actually the state of your heart and your life even today. It's your present day reality simply because of this. You don't yet know Jesus Christ. You don't yet belong to him. And if that's you, you need to hear what is yet to come. There's hope for you. But this is where we've all come from. This was each one of us. This is what we all were, alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. It's an unappealing look, an embarrassing snap from the album. But having given us that rather downbeat reminder of what we were, Paul now turns to tell us of what he has done. And that's our next focus, what he has done, what Jesus has done. And this is much more hope-filled, verse 22. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That's what Jesus has done. If you ever face a situation of alienation, of discord, of conflict, if ever you find yourself there, and we all do from time to time, an urgent priority is to figure out what it will take to make things right, to open the door once more to relationship, to establish a bridge, to deal with the offense, to remove the barrier. In the great alienation of humanity from God due to sin, within that great alienation, what was it going to take 
to bring us back together, to make things right, to remove the barrier, for the door to be open, for the relationship to be restored. What was it going to take? The guilt and the wrongdoing within the dynamic, that was all us. God was holy and righteous in all his interactions with us, and he still is, in all his judgments toward us. But although we were in the wrong, we were also at the same time entirely powerless to make things right, to do anything about the crisis of relationship. God is high above us. He dwells in unapproachable light in the light of his holiness in his heavenly home. We had no access to him. There was no way of us getting up there. We couldn't reach him. But the wonder of his grace and the heart of the gospel is this. He came down to us. He came to meet us in our crisis. And he came to meet us in our need. It's not that he simply traveled to this world that he made a fleeting visit to the disaster zone for a quick photo op. He didn't just come to our locality, visit our community, stay a while in our vicinity. No, he did something profoundly more wonderful. In Christ, he became one of us. That's the truth wrapped up in that phrase that Paul uses, his body of flesh. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took on flesh, became human. And this step, the incarnation of Christ as we speak of it, this step was necessary. This step was vital. This step was essential if reconciliation was to be achieved. You see, the cost of our sin is nothing less than death itself. The Bible makes it so clear that for the problem of sin to be dealt with, there needs to be a death to pay the price. There needs, in fact, to be a human death to pay for human sin. And God in his divinity, well, God cannot die. The eternal God, he is not subject to death. But death would be needed for this reconciliation. That was the basic precondition. If things were going to be made right between us and God, death was going to be essential. The price of sin is always death. Adam and Eve learned that in the garden. They were warned that if they disobeyed God, they would surely die, and die they did. Paul writes elsewhere that the wages of sin is death. It's the price set by God himself. It is the price his justice demands. For us to be forgiven, for our debt to be cleared, for the justice of God to be satisfied, for the relational barrier to be removed, there needed to be a death, a human death, to pay for human sin. And Jesus gave his body, the body of his flesh, to pay the price, to suffer and to die in our place. His body, his flesh, became the place and the means of reconciliation. He came to us in humanity. He came to us in flesh, and he gave himself to die. Jonathan Griffiths here on Encounter the Truth with a message called Reconciled Through Jesus. Such an important truth for us to wrestle with, to grasp, to understand, and then to live in the light of the reconciliation that we can have through Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to continue this message on our next broadcast. I hope you make it a point to listen. If you ever miss a program, you can listen online. Just come to our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. 
You know, if you're a regular listener to this program, you know that Encounter the Truth is listener-supported. We do depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station, but as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by Tim Keller. It's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And Jonathan, why did you pick this book? I think you and I have an uphill battle to see ourselves not through the lens of our successes and our failures, but to see ourselves through the lens of Jesus Christ and his gospel. If we belong to Jesus, our identity is now bound up with him, who he is and what he has done at Calvary. And the way to personal freedom is to see ourselves in Christ and through the lens of what he's done. And and this little book is such a tremendous help in taking us to that place of freedom. And I believe it'll be a help to you. Well, the book is called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, and we would love to send you a copy as you give a gift of any amount this month. You can give a gift online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 1-833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. For Jonathan, I'm Steve Hiller. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.